uh, for Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. Uh, my name is Ken Rimple, and I'm joined by Sujan Kabadia. Say hi, Sujan. Hey, guys, I'm back. <laughs> uh, let me just get things set up here. You'll never get rid of me. Hey, good. That's fine by me. Always welcome. All right. So the Tech Chat Tuesday is brought to you by Chariot Solutions. Uh, and so, hey, Tom. Hello. Hi, Tom. And we are also joined today by Tom Purcell. Say hi, Tom, to the folks at home. Hi, Tom. <laughs> That's Tom saying Tom. Um, but yeah, welcome, Tom. And uh, Tom, uh, why don't you explain who you are to the folks out there? Uh, the short version. The short version. <laughs> the short version? Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a consultant with Chariot Solutions. I've been doing uh, software development since 1985. It's so long ago, back in the since back in the 1900s, we used to have to <laughs> crank the punch card machine up with a crank and uh, spinning Jenny. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that much younger than you, Tom. Oh man, well, welcome, and we appreciate you coming on because one of the topics we'll be covering today is uh, early computing, and then later on we'll talk about some of the real big innovations in Apple's M1 chip. That's kind of the, the purpose of this uh, particular cast today. So welcome. Um, what we'll do is we'll start off uh, by taking a look at some things that are coming up at the Chariot uh, side of things. So again, we're sponsored by and we are Chariot Solutions. So I wanted to mention some things that are coming up. I'm running a uh, webinar uh, called uh, Build a Cloud Native Web App in Eight Weeks. Uh, that's coming up in, uh, when is that date on that? December 9th. Uh, and that's an hour-long webinar. We're going to step through some of the techniques we used on a couple of our last projects using Docker containers for local development and then deploying to AWS. Just kind of going through, if you had an eight-week set of four sprints, what, what would you focus on? What's the priority order in getting some use cases rolled out to a production environment? And what are all the things you should care about? It's free. You don't have to pay anything for it. So you can go to chariotsolutions.com, head to our events tab, uh, which is over here on resources, events, uh, and we'll also have it in the show notes here on the right. There it is, build a cloud native web app in eight weeks. You can also see some of our prior events. So that's something that's coming up. Also want to let you know that you can head over to YouTube, youtube.com slash chariot solutions. Uh, the whole bunch of videos there from everything from our Philly emerging tech shows to our custom shows for specific things like uh, Internet of Things devices and single page applications. Uh, also our 15 minutes with series. Uh, which are quick interviews with some of our tech people and business people that we know. Um, and also all of the emerging technology shows for the past, I don't know, eight, nine years, um, all their sessions are online. So that's a good resource for you. Uh, in our blog, if you go to our resources blog section, you'll see a bunch of stuff in here. Uh, let's talk briefly then about uh, Rod Beerish's uh, recent 15 minutes with. So, and hopefully it doesn't start playing. Um, but uh, this is Pete Fleming interviewing Rod. Rod is one of our developers on mobile. He's been with us since almost the beginning of, of Chariot. And uh, he um, has been doing a lot of mobile development, but also he is an avid golfer. Uh, he would probably mop the floor with even my thought of going in golf. Uh, but uh, he has a, a game he likes to play called Wolf, which is a, a classic golf game that involves four players. So he wanted to build a mobile app uh, to help him keep track of the game on the golf course. So then he worked with a Chariot team to build that, uh, including Pete Fleming, to build the Wolf Golf Scorecard app. So he became a 
you know, person asking for requirements instead of the person writing the code based on the requirements. So he was, he was the customer, uh, which is interesting. So that's a neat little 15 minutes with from one of our technologists kind of with the tables turned on him saying, all right, now I have to actually uh, act as the customer and ask you what I want. It must have been kind of fun in a way. So that's up there. All right, uh, and I think that's everything we have uh, in terms of announcements. So why don't we get into our first dev news item. The first dev news item is GraphQL Java 16 has been released. Uh, and so GraphQL Java has been sitting out there for a long time. Um, it's the Java uh, reference implementation of GraphQL. Uh, and I know that, for example, Spring Boot, uh, there's a Spring Boot starter for GraphQL that is based on this API. Uh, and they just came out with their major point, uh, major release of point, uh, 16.0. And so they've done some things for, you know, usability purposes. If we go here, um, directives like repeatable directives, for whatever reason, uh, you could only have one annotation slash directive on a given named thing before. So that got kind of complicated and ugly. And now you can have multiple entries. And I'm assuming these are things like security and settings and types and conversions. I don't know what they are, but bottom line is that is a, a major change there. Uh, and then some other specific changes. So if you're following GraphQL and Java, you might want to have a look at this API and see what's changed. I do know that the Spring Boot GraphQL starter has not moved off of GraphQL 15 yet. And I also saw an interesting uh, issue. If you go to issues, and let's see if it's still there. And this one seems to be a killer issue. Uh, a legal character and module name. You know, in Java, you can't have dashes in the module name. Someone made a change to the module name and has a uh, Java dash GraphQL, a GraphQL dash Java in it, which I'm assuming would be bad for any language like Java that has to not have dashes in the package name. So hopefully that gets resolved very quickly. Um, and it looks like, uh, you know, it might already have a pull request on it. So we'll see. So that's GraphQL. Is anybody here using GraphQL yet on their projects? I don't currently use it. I know we have a couple clients, right? We do have a couple clients that use it. Um, I hear mixed opinions about it. I mm -hmm. guess all my opinions are unfounded, but I do have strong opinions against it. We uh -huh. can probably do that for another day. I just don't like the mutation update model that it provides. And I think most clients still need REST interfaces anyway. So even if you were to do something GraphQL to help out front-end developers, which I agree makes certain things easier for them, you end up having to think in REST thinking GraphQL, having something in the back that's factored out to support both, and now you have to mean two surface areas. And I think it complicates things. I, you know, my, my first thought is always choosing REST mm -hmm. over that and, and trying to figure out how to help the front end developers in, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, the allure of doing the queries is certainly the big thing there, right? And also subscriptions, which is a neat idea, but you're right, then you have to maintain two different branches or two blocks of code to deal with the different types of interfaces to query it. That's so. what I've seen is people just don't feel it's worth the additional effort. Mm -hmm. Like you it's said, like a, you rest anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like a solution in search of a problem in some ways like that. Yeah. Okay. All right, great. Uh, so anyway, that's one thing. Uh, this is a piece of science news that depresses me. Um, uh, in science, uh, sciencemag.org, there's the announcement, and this is everywhere, uh, that the Arecibo telescope, uh, the first cable snapped a couple months ago, I think, and it uh, crashed some of the equipment down uh, into the bowl, destroying part of it. And now a second cable is either snapped or about to snap. 
uh, and it's too dangerous to keep running anymore. They have to start dismantling it. And that in and of itself is an engineering probably nightmare because look how tall those towers are yeah. and you got to get equipment up there and cranes to move things around. And I just can't imagine. So they're going to be basically removing most of the equipment at the Arecibo radio telescope. Can I, I make it a little more depressing without getting into politics or anything like that? But yeah, it's fine. It's amazing how quickly they responded to this and they've experienced Puerto Rico experienced a lot of calamities in the last few yes. years. The response to this was quicker than any of the other actual disasters. Yeah, that's that very wrong? sad. That's very sad. I, I agree with you on that. Um, you know, the, yeah, we'll skip the political ramifications of that, but the, just the human tragedy in, in Puerto Rico. And then this, you know, at the end of it is uh, just another, I shouldn't say the end of it. And the next thing is just a, a rough hit for them. So uh, I don't know what the biggest, I, I think now there's this whole concept of, you know, triangulating multiple smaller telescopes across a large area to get a virtual large telescope. That's I forget what they call that, but um, uh, that's the newer thing that they're doing. So they might have like three different radio telescopes around the world, all in you know the same, uh, you know, rotation of the earth at the right time. And then they, they ultimately kind of put them all together in a larger scope. So they may not need something this big anymore, but I'm no scientist, so. All right, so that leads us to our main topic for the day. And our main topic for today, uh, we're going to go look back at early computers and their innovations. And so um, I'm going to throw this up here and see if I can get it to present. That may be, yes, it worked beautifully. So, so the thing is, um, you know, Apple has come up with their M1 chip and before that the A14 chip, um, which are, because they own their own silicon, uh, they can build their own processors now, and they can put systems on a chip. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit and look at the results of those in a little bit. But I wanted to step back a little bit and think about, you know, we've all been using pretty standard computers for the past two decades. You know, you could say the, the Apple Mac is a really, you know, useful, innovative computer. It's closed hardware, but it really processes things well. It's a nice stable system overall. Windows machines are what they are. Linux machines are all using the same hardware the Windows machines are using and everything, all the buses and things are all figured out. But before that, when we were young lads, uh, things were a lot different. There wasn't a standards body. If there was, there were for small connectors and things like that, like for RS-232 ports or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, we look back a little bit and we think about the earlier computers that we've each worked with. Um, the first one that comes to mind for me was the first computer I ever owned. I had video games before this, nerd. Uh, but <laughs> but the first computer I actually had was the Commodore 64. Um, Sujan, that was your first one too, right? Not your first one, one of your first we ones, didn't right? own a PC till later in the 80s, but one okay. of the first ones that I interacted with was the Commodore 64. I named right. Commodore 64. So the thing about this uh, thing was, uh, at the time, and we can go back, by the way, in the podcast, um, uh, it, it, uh, Rod Beerish actually has an uncle who was one of the designers of the, the chip that ended up being a variant that ended up in the Commodore 64, the 6502, uh, and working with Commodore at that time. Um, so the, the, the Commodore was out chip. in Westchester. They were in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's where their headquarters were. And, oh, really? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I, I used to, I, I was, at the time, I was working as an auditor for the Pennsylvania Department of Revenue. This is early 80s. And I wanted to get out of doing accounting work and into computers. And so uh, I wound up going to Westchester University because um, 
at the time, I looked into Villanova's program and St. Joe's program and Westchester was the only one of the three that actually had their own computer. The others all ran at time. Where I wound up using the Commodore 64 was instead of driving all the way out to Westchester from Upper Darby, right? Mm -hmm. I had a Commodore 64 and I connected with my 300 bald modem. Did you use this kind of modem, the acoustic modem? Well, the thing is with the Commodore 64, it, it, it was a little cartridge that you plugged in. Yeah, that's yeah. what I used. Out at, out, at the, out at the university in the computer labs, you had to take the phone and plug it into the acoustic coupling yeah. in order to use the um, – they had machines that were uh, – they mimicked key punch. But there were two different kinds. One had paper feed, a paper feed, and the other one had uh, actually a CRT screen. Mm -hmm. But basically, what you're doing is typing in 80 column punch cards. So this is interesting because it, it came with Basic programmed into it. You boot it up, Basic shows up, um, and a lot of com earlier computers did that. I believe with the Apple II and Atari and all these other ones, you could boot up into Basic, and it was generally the chip that you know. They had a, an EEPROM or something they programmed that into. Um, but what made this interesting was only a couple hundred bucks, right? It was it was like a computer for the masses. And they had done the PET and, you know, the VIC-20. Um, and before that, there was a, a computer board. So they'd been working on this for almost a decade by the time they came out with the Commodore 64. But it was really the first, one of the first computers that people could program and get things done with uh, that was cheap enough that you could hook it up to one of your TVs and get things done without... Going yeah, a cool contract. thing called sprites, I think it was that you could sprites. use to 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 do animation and stuff like that. It was uh, a relatively low bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, I know this is kind of obvious, but the Commodore sixty four. So one of the innovations there was cheap computing hardware that was good enough for people to hobbyist uh, experiment with, write some programs. There were people that ran their businesses like databases and stuff on the Commodore sixty four. Today you think of that and think it's crazy, but they also had some cracking good games too. I also wanted to bring up the uh, dreaded 1541 drop uh, floppy drive. This drive ran so hot that it would melt the discs if you weren't careful. So in my apartment when I was growing up, I had the computer on one side and there was the air conditioner on the other side. And if I was doing something particularly nasty with the drive, like writing a, a bunch of data, I would put it on its side and put it up against the air conditioner so it wouldn't melt the discs. So just to remember, there's lots of things that get really weird with this stuff, um, this early innovations. But that was, I think it was 160K or something like that. Massive, massive drive. Um, all right, it so there's that. It was a floppy disk, right? It was a floppy disk. It was a big five and a quarter yeah. inch floppy. Yeah. And remember, mm -hmm. you used to be able to uh, punch the, so they were, it was single sided, yeah. right? So the media, it only had a right head on the, on the read head on the top. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. But they had double sided disks. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm wrong. Wasn't it double sided? I think I, I'm. I'm I, I think, think it was double sided. Was. I think because it was. The, but the point was. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. But you had to again. It was like you you put the the disk in to load your program, and if you wanted to save a file, you took the disk out. You put another disk in. On <laughs> memories of loading ten disks to get games installed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. The game as you're, okay. Please now install Disket Three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, so did you put yours, uh, Sujan? You put your computer in here. Is it coming up? Uh, I don't know where it's coming up, but uh, I don't. My first computer actually was a two eighty six that we owned as a family. But the ones I interacted with were earlier. I think that we'll get to. Yeah. Okay. I'm just looking in here. 
Oh, I see what you got. All right. So, um, all right, I'm going to move on to something else because um, being the Commodore nerd, uh, I thought that that was really an interesting platform. And then I got this when I was a junior in high school. I got the Commodore Amiga 1000. And that really, that convinced me that I was going to do software programming and, and work in the industry. It still had floppy drives. In fact, I had the external floppy, so I could do two floppies at the same time out of control. But it actually, in that time frame, multitasked, multitasked and had compilers and all sorts of stuff that you could, you could use. And it really gave you pretty much a real operating system to work with. It was a windowed operating system uh, that you could launch multiple programs, and it did them really, really well. So the Amiga was a big changer for me. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when you get in the industry, you don't get to use those things. But uh, it was really, really uh, innovative at the time. Has anyone ever used an Amiga? It was one of those things I wanted at the time. But yeah. I never got around to getting one. But uh, then what happened was, uh, well, some PCs. guy on the West Coast signed a contract with IBM. And, and that's it. Yeah, That was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let me bring up the reason I'm bringing up the Amiga. The, the reason I'm bringing up the Amiga was it was one of the first computers to use coprocessors. And they had these silly names like Agnes and Denise, and I forget the other one's name, but there was a memory mover processor, there was a video processor, and there was an IO board processor. And those all coordinated with a Motorola 68000 CPU, which was pretty powerful for the time. It's the same CPU that the Apple, uh, original Apple Macintosh used. So um, major change in processing power, major change in, in processing, uh, you know, multiprocessing because the operating system was written to be multiprocessing. So you could launch an editor and be working on an editor while you were compiling something in the background and you had a little clock ticking away and showing things. Um, but it used a multiple, multiple internal processors to get things done. So a very early version of that from a desktop perspective. The assembly language classes that I took in college were based on the Motorola 68000. That's what we had to learn on. Yeah, cool. me too. Yeah, that's what they were doing. It was on a, actually on a PET, a Commodore PET. Mm. Oh. Westchester. Yeah, like I said, Commodore was in her headquarters in Westchester. They donated a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. to Westchester. But then the thing is, too, by the time th this machine came along, I was actually at that at that point working in the industry, but I was working on real computers. Like big computers. IBM mainframes. Yeah, of course. Back in the old day, if it didn't have pipes, it wasn't a real computer. <laughs> you meant heating and cooling pipes, correct? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so when it got floor. installed, the first guy to show up was the plumber. <laughs> <laughs> Better get that uh, fitting right, or you're going to have billions of dollars of loss. Yeah. The reason for that raised floor. And you think about it, like that was the innovation from the 1950s all the way up to like the 80s. Mm -hmm. And late into the 80s and early into the 90s, you know, it was all bigger iron, mini computers, mainframes, they were all the thing. And so if you were lucky enough to get a good like Unix type system, multiple user system, um, it still was pretty expensive, something you couldn't really afford. So this little thing here was able to do some of that stuff without me having to truck out to a college and play around with expensive hardware. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty cool. But then it got worse because then I bought, uh, well, actually it got worse this way because when I was in college, I met the semi-real world too. Um, I needed to pay my bills uh, and, and I was in my junior and senior year and the English professor came up and said, you know, we, we don't have a lab assistant that can wrestle these K-Pro Model 2 computers to the ground. 
this is what you would call a luggable computer. And so, you know, another early innovation is being able to pick up and move your computer where you want it to go. I don't know if you notice the big giant snaps on the left and right, but that snapped the keyboard into the yeah. base so you can lift this 40 pound computer around. Yeah. Uh, and it ran CPM and it looks like, yeah, it looks like it's showing a, a document here, uh, probably a WordStar document. But, you know, early, early computers, you got to understand, these things were ridiculously heavy. They weren't iPads. They weren't phones. They were freaking heavy. Yeah. Um, and that one was, you know, innovative for the time because you could move it around. That was the big innovation of those things. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, I really ended up getting one of these suckers, which was the first computer I had with a hard disk. It was a SCSI hard drive. I think it was 80 megabytes. Don't be crazy. Um, 80 whole megabytes. Uh, your first hard drive was 80 and my first hard drive was 40 megabytes. It might have been 40. It was something along those lines. It was very small. Um, and so the thing is, it had one floppy, mine did, and it had the internal hard drive. And it made the Amiga operating system sing. You know, it was nice and fast. And I remember my first interaction with what was to be the internet, which was Usenet and BitNet groups. I did that uh, when my, my wife at the time worked at University of Delaware. We had a University of Delaware account, and I was able to connect up with my modem, 2400 baud modem at the time. Uh, ooh. And then uh, I was able to connect that thing, or it was 1200, let me correct myself, connect that up and use a terminal and get online and do all my stuff. And all my computer science work was done either on the 1000 or the 3000, unless I was forced to use something else. And the only thing I was forced to use that I enjoyed was an AT&T 3B2 Unix machine where I learned Oracle 4. So that's when I got into actual programming and I figured at some point I would ditch the old non-IBM computers because I wasn't making any money on this stuff. But that was some of my earlier computers. And this one, again, just took the, the same concepts, multiprocessors, um, you know, having the different chipsets and things like that, but now had a SCSI hard drive and was much more able to do things in real time and get a lot done, but still play great games. So I was still a game nerd at the time. Hey, here we go. Sue oh. John. So anyway. yeah, I love the Tandy TRS-80. My first exposure to that was in our schools had a bunch of them all over the place and you could easily program basic on it. It was easy to just sit down and start hacking at stuff. It was nice. I guess back then, uh, basic was my first uh, foray into programming, and it was like almost instantaneous feedback when you're when you're executing a program, mm -hmm. right? So, in the way I got into programming, believe it or not, was my sixth grade social studies teacher, who cool. did trash eighties, as they were lovingly referred to back yes. then. Um, and he would write in basic, he would write history quizzes and games on it and with like really, really rudimentary like ASCII animations, mm -hmm. green screen. Um, so he taught himself to do that. And I was like, wow, this is really cool when something would go wrong, me and a couple other nerdy kids would, like fix it or hack around with it. So that's how we, we got into it. Um, and I definitely miss floppies because they don't hurt as much when you're flinging them at each other. as <laughs> This is like you're saying, right? Like an all-in-one, you get your, a screen, you get floppy, you know, removable storage. You can you can program it right away. It was mm -hmm. like great for any enthusiast or any kids that want to learn how to program. Yeah, you needed the immediacy. I think that's part of the thing. Uh, now, uh, Tom, you were in in the era of the punch cards and time sharing systems and everything, so the immediacy wasn't there, right? Um, well, yes and no. 
Yes okay. and no. I mean, the thing about it was there were I, I came into the, the business computing world just as uh, things were shifting away from punch cards. In fact, mm -hmm. first, the first big project I worked on was to uh, move Chevrolet central office payroll system off of uh, punch cards and into a um, they would enter the data via punch cards, uh, get them off of punch cards and into a CICS system. Mm -hmm. So you get your screens, basically. Yeah, which yeah. was uh, the original dumb terminal, uh, all uh, IBM technology. And uh, out there, it was in outside of Michigan. I'm, I'm sorry, outside of Detroit, uh, working for General Motors. It was all uh, PL1 was the language we used. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So learning that without having the inst instantaneous, like, basic, where you, you can type a program in 10, blah, 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 enter 20. You still have an editor, right? You still have to push it through a compiler, but... Well, you ha we had. Uh, I know I'm asking like we, we obvious had, questions, but okay. So you shared an office with another developer, right? Mm -hmm. And there was one CRT <laughs> in the office, and so you had to, you know, negotiate with your partner who was going to get. You get it this morning, I get it in the afternoon. You know that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Oh man, uh, yeah. yeah. And so a lot of programming happened by. Uh, printing out the code and walking through it and i need to make this if they you'd mark it up and everything else like that so when you got to the got to the finally got to the terminal you would you know that that's like a whole other dimension of pair programming that you just mentioned there <laughs> yeah pair combat <laughs> yeah but the interesting thing about it though it was um it taught me how to not just hack yeah you know you had to you had to up front, think it, go through what you were going to do because you had a limited amount of time to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. You just like, you know, try this and then try that and then try that. You had to go to, you, when you sat down in the terminal, you pretty much had to be ready to type in. It was something that you were pretty confident was going to work. Was, exactly. upper, was upper management, sorry to blame, was upper management appreciative of those constraints or they're like, no, just get this stuff done? Um, it was kind of baked in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the time, the people uh, that I was working with were, excellent really nice about things and everything else like that so yeah it was it was understood you know okay. it's like yeah um that yeah and when i f the very first time i saw an, an ibm personal computer running dos it sat in a cube in the office where i worked at and like nobody touched it for like a year and a half <laughs> They were afraid of it. Yeah. yeah well, What's the thing was, you really couldn't you it, it, um, you couldn't really use it right. for what we did because at the time, IBM was IBM had its own proprietary networking and everything else like that. So uh, you couldn't do any of your work, so to speak, Makes sense. on that computer because you couldn't connect to the mainframe with it. Yep. 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 All right. Hey, let's talk about this one. All right. So the reason I brought this up and although it's a calculator, so my dad's a retired civil engineer, but he used this calculator for many, many years. And I classify it as a computer uh, because you can basically execute basic like programs. You can store them, you can run them. And it was a really powerful calculator for its time. It's the first time I got exposed to, you know, stack based computation. And I could never use another calculator ever, ever since after it had to be reverse Polish notation calculators and HP calculators. But I don't know if you got, I, I missed the times of pouring through thick manuals 
to learn stuff. Like, you know, it came with a thick yeah. manual and everything needed to learn or know was in that manual. You don't have to go to like 10 other books or, and you know, I just read it cover to cover and started programming little things on this, um, which I thought was amazing. And I ended up breaking it in high school, much to my dad's disappointment. But um, <laughs> I would say this was definitely one of the first, first thing, first things I learned how to program. Those things I have are a really story cool. about this thing. Go ahead. I bartended for a period of time. And one of the guys who came into the bar was a um, was was an engineer for the Army Corps of Engineers, right? And um, some of the other guys that came into the bar were truck drivers, right? So me and him, me and the, the the engineer, we'd be talking about like the Commodore sixty four and computers and everything else like that. And they thought we were um, we were full of it, basically. What they thought, you know, the truck drivers. <laughs> So one day the truck drivers wrote out a series of numbers on a piece of paper and handed it to us, handed it to us, right? And said, tell me what's the next number in this sequence, right? And the sequence was like 69th, 52nd, uh, 30th, 16th, something like that, 16th. And me and him, we, he got this thing out and we're trying this, we're trying that, we're doing like, you know, polynomials and we're doing all this, you know, Fibonacci series and everything else like that. Finally, we gave up. And what, what, what the list of numbers was, was the L stops in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> That's bartending 101 right there. <laughs> they thought that, the truck driver, they thought that was hilarious. They thought that was the funniest thing that happened ever. You could fool the computer, mm -hmm. the person planning the computing program, if you just fit him a bunch of garbage requirements. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yep. I had a, a, an HP uh, RPN calculator at 1.2, and I really, I love that concept. I always look for one, too. Yeah. Um, I do love to just press enter after each thing and then hit the operation and pop it off the stack and compute it. It's just great. And then the era of graphical calculator, you know, TI had their own series of calculators and then HP had really powerful ones too that, I mean, you literally, there were full-fledged computers and people yeah. were video games for them and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, my kids have the, what is it? Um, the HP, I can't remember anymore, something 83, TI, oh, sorry, it's the Texas Instruments TI 83, okay. which they're like 50 different variants of and they're all 200 bucks to 100 bucks. And you're like, why is this so darn expensive? But uh, they, you can program them, and, uh, I, and my son was doing that instead of doing his schoolwork at one point. So <laughs> that was fun. All right. Now I thought this would be fun to look at. Um, when I went uh, to my internship in college, they sent me to Unisys, which was Sperry and Burroughs, two mainframe companies uh, and defense contractors, got together, uh, and the power of two. Um, <laughs> that was their, their logo. And they, they got together and they had two separate sets of mainframes. They had the Sperry side of mainframes and the Burroughs side of mainframes, which were the Burroughs ones were dubbed the A series mainframes, A9, A16, A whatever. At one point when I was there, they decided that they wanted to take the the chip, uh, SCAMP was the name of the chip scamp. Um, it was like a system on a chip basically with a mainframe processor in it. So imagine um, let me see if I can find it in here. Oh, there it goes. Yeah, okay. So let me see, micro A. Yeah, single chip scant processor. Let's see if I can find it on here. Micro A. There is a, uh, a picture of it somewhere and I won't be able to find it. Hold on. Um, it's worth looking at. Google.com. 
while you're doing that, funny you mentioned Sperry. I used to I used to work at Lockheed Martin years ago, mm -hmm. and the guy who I'm like looking at a graph right now. I went through like the you know Junimac, Sperry, you know there's a Laurel, Lockheed Martin, like he. Same desk, same cubicle, and the company, you know, he stayed in the same spot his entire career, but the company changed like five times. <laughs> it's like office space, except that instead of the company, instead of him moving to the basement, the company moved around. Mm. All right, here is a giant ISA board. <laughs> this is like if engineers could do something without unlimited budget, this is what they would come up with. That's a mainframe on an ISA board for a PC, or maybe an ESA board. Director. My God. <laughs> So that thing on the left on um, gold is the A series. And I was in the lab. So I was uh, testing all the operating system patches and making sure the mainframe would come up. And it's this PC and on top of the PC was this giant tape drive. <laughs> like, mm, this is not what I want to work with the rest of my life, but it was really cool that they figured out how to engineer a mainframe, a single CPU mainframe down to a PC. So it booted an OS2 and then OS2 communicate with the bridge on the ISA bus to start up jobs and programs on the uh, master control program on the mainframe. That's crazy stuff, but it existed. It existed at one point. So, hey, hats off to them, I guess. Okay, what else do we have here? Do you have any more? And then we got into the PC era. So, Tom, yeah, so, so the thing is, I remember the beginning of the PC era. We had all sorts of wackadoodle, um, especially around the, the, the laptops and luggables and portables. You know, the Compaq had those crazy clamshell, big portable computers, uh, luggables. Um, but then the earliest laptops were kind of crazy. Have you ever seen or worked with a Compaq LTE? Somebody I worked with had one. I was sitting in a meeting one day. And uh, I heard this click that, yep, that's it. I heard this clicking sound behind me, and I couldn't uh -huh. figure out what it was. was I didn't click? want to turn around because I was supposed to be paying attention what the guy was talking about. <laughs> but I couldn't. And I turned around, and she was sitting there with one of these, and she was taking notes. Yep. I was yep, like, yep, yep. wow, you can do that? They were weird because here's the thing that was weird about them. Of course, now I've lost control of my browser. There we go. Um, on the back of this thing, oh, there's media. I don't want to play the video. On the back of it is a mouse trackball. So, and actually on mine, the, 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 I'm sorry, the trackball was over here on the, on the, on pointing, but my mouse isn't showing. On the right side, there was a trackball on the front where the screen is. And then behind it were two buttons. And you imagine using this all day, you had to have the laptop really close to you or your arm would fall off. But that was one of the first ones that I remember having that had, it had windows on it. You could get stuff done. Uh, and it had this modular base system down at the bottom. So you could pop in a, a floppy drive or pop in a hard disk at the time. Uh, they were starting to do those. And then a battery. So, like, there was a point where I had two batteries. If I was taking a trip or something, I could put the two batteries in and get, like, a whole hour or two of <laughs> battery life for this thing. But I remember a story. I thought I'd bring this up because everyone has their computer disaster story. I was working at the time for a consulting firm downtown. And I was troubleshooting a database uh, that went down for a customer and the customer was really agitated. So we're in the cold room uh, and you know, the fans are blowing around and everything. And I had this, this laptop on a desk, but there was no place to plug it in. So I had it wired over to the plug on the other side and the guy's shouting in my ear cause he's really stressed out cause it's a production system. And I swivel and I watched the laptop literally fly in slow motion. And it, it went end over end over end over end over end. And it landed on the right corner 
when it did that, the following actions took place. The battery flew out. The hard disk uh, just basically got demolished and the screen cracked into a million pieces. So I remember like those things did not handle damage very well. <laughs> and to take the thing back and say, look what I did to your lovely machine. Um, have you ever dropped a laptop in an epic fashion? Any, either of you? My daughter has. All right. <laughs> Well, that's okay. Your daughter's awesome. So I'm around this period in time. I was working uh, on a system. They finally conquered the uh, the uh, the issue of communicating with the mainframe, and I was working on a, an OS two system. I wrote a bunch of Rex code on oh. OS two to monitor the um, the mainframes at a bank. And uh, I don't know if you guys you guys are probably too young to remember pagers. Oh no, I had a pager. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have one, but I remember them. Okay. Yeah, well, there there were these alpha pagers where you could send. It was like an early Twitter. It was like you send like 120 characters on this alpha pager, <laughs> right? And so we would see it. We would, I would find it. It would be an error on the the mainframe console. It would look up who was responsible for that particular system, and it would um, send a uh, the error text to the um, to the pager to the alpha pager. And um, if it wasn't answered in 15 minutes, it would send it to his manager. And then if it. Wow. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. I had fun doing that. It was all OS2 and Rex. And uh, that was, that was, that was a cool project. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we get to, so the point of all these things here is that each of these computers takes a step forward and it might, sometimes those step forwards were kind of little left turns, you know, um, the hardware didn't work that well, or, you know, like the track ball would, you know, munge up or you'd drop it outside. Uh, but the bottom line is little tiny steps forward. Um, in the, you know, OOs, we had the switch of, of uh, Apple over from the 68,000 chips to the Intel chips, which basically made them really available for everybody. Apple has just over the last, I don't know, total, probably a decade has been planning for this, but in the last couple of years, they've been creating their own chips for the iPad and the iPhone. And, you know, so instead of having like a, a, an ARM chip that they had to license uh, everything and, and the hardware to get built for them, now they're embedding their own chips. So they learned a lot in doing that and they, you know, improved their fab process, they improved the size of everything. Uh, and they've just come out with an Apple M1 chip. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago on the show that uh, they're, they're basically putting a system on a chip just like we saw the IBM or the uh, Unisys mainframe on a chip, but this is running the whole operating system. So it's got memory management, it's got the actual RAM, it's got the, the IO controllers, it's got the CPU, and it's got a, a, a discrete GPU built into it, a basic GPU built into it, and it's all in one chip. It's also a five micron process, which is ridiculously small. So it means five microns between the transistors. Um, and Intel's like, I think, close to still double that for its high-end stuff. So if you have smaller components and they're, you know, very close together, you can run it at lower power. And so that means the battery life is better potentially on these things. So you've got things closer together. They move faster because everything's so close to each other. The memory is controlled by the chip. They call it a unified memory model. I haven't looked too much into this, but apparently it's kind of like when you use an iPad and all the memory is available right away. You don't have to copy memory from the RAM over to the cache to then get things done. It's all there. So starting things could be instantaneous. Running things, multiple things at the same time, the, the processing and swap time between things is really fast. 
So they put together this M1 chip and they released three uh, pieces of hardware for it. An, a, a Mac Mini, a uh, MacBook Air, and a MacBook Pro 13-inch. Well, it turns out that these things are smoking fast and they sip battery very, very lightly. Tom's hardware has a really good... Uh, Tom, <laughs> you're not the Tom. Tom's hardware, let's pretend it's Tom. <laughs> I'm going to get a takedown notice now. Uh, so Tom's hardware has a really good review. Um, you know, so this, this chip, they, they have images of this all over the place where there's like an eight core CPU. They got four low power cores, four high power cores. Um, there's, there's machine learning units in it, just like the, the, uh, uh, a14 chip. There's crazy stuff in here, but it's an arm based chip that they own that they've licensed the arm technology and they've done their own arm rollout. Um, these things are crazy fast. So first of all, you can get a Mac mini with, you know, a quarter gig of storage. I think it's eight gigs of Ram. You can upgrade to 16 for like 700 bucks. And the CPU speed on the Mac mini in the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro is faster for single core and multi-core than 95% of laptops that are out there today, which is nuts. Hi, whoever you are waving at me um, <laughs> from that video. So it's insane. Uh, and these are only the first three that they've come up with. So you got to figure that once these things hit, and you really start seeing this stuff come uh, come out. Um, and of course, Tom's hair where they, they've basically, you know, opened one up, which eh, I'm glad they had the budget to do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good for you. Um, perfectly good guitar, huh? <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, and then they have these systems on a chip and these little tiny boards. So it takes the place of an entire board. It's like if you open up, if you've ever opened up an iPad to try to fix a broken screen uh, uh, or a phone, you know there's little tiny circuit boards there with very few components overall because they own it all and they can design everything. So the native performance is the big thing. You have to have comp uh, programs compiled for the M1 ARM chip in order to get tr true raw native performance, but they're starting to appear. Um, so for example, Engadget uh, said, the M and this is quoting from Tom's Hardware, when the M1 does get to run natively, it seems to pack some serious power. Engadget reports the M1 MacBook Air, it's the Air, had a Geekbench 5 result of 1619, uh, which I think is single core, and 6292, which is dual uh, multi-core. Um, well above their results for the 2020 i7 MacBook Air, which were 1330 and 3053, the Tiger Lake Dell XPS 13 9310 scored 14 slash 5224. So this thing is, is screaming fast, like a Carbon Extreme Gen 3 with ThinkPad, which has an i7 scored less than this thing. Mm -hmm. And this is like a $900 unit. And mm -hmm. they brought back the escape key. Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. I need my escape key. Yes. If only it worked in real life, I could hit the escape key and be out of a meeting. I want that, but but for computers, I need it too. So I'm using an older MacBook Pro here and I've got the virtual escape key and it makes me cry every time because I'm a Vim user, VI user, and it just makes me hurt. Um, yeah, it brought back the escape key. Um, and then it also beat, now this kills me, the M1 single core score, single core of the, of the eight, beats the 27 inch 2020 core i9 imax single core which only hit 1246 it's almost 400 points higher than that so then the verge tested it um and they did it on different conditions uh and they found you know 
even better performance. I don't know. Uh, I've been listening to, I love this one podcast that I've listened to for years. And actually, I love all of Leo Laporte's podcasts. But uh, Leo Laporte has the screensavers and, and uh, uh, other things. But he has this one called Mac Break Weekly, which I encourage you to find the episode for. He has a whole episode last week um, discussing this change uh, with people that are well-known uh, in the industry that do things like all these teardowns and, and do performance checks and are reporters. And they're just like, this thing is crazy fast. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, where we head with this. And again, the big thing is the M1 chip is what's driving all this is the discrete, uh, well, I should say the system on a chip concept with everything really, really close together is bucking any kind of standard that exists, right? Now, what do they do for software that doesn't uh, you know, it wasn't compiled for it. Well, remember Rosetta? So Rosetta was the software back when they had the 68,000 Macs that went to the Intel Mac chipset. The first Rosetta would translate the code to Intel machine code as it ran and run, you know, you know it, it were all old software on an Intel MacBook Pro. Uh, and it was really slow. It turns out that they have Rosetta 2. And in Rosetta 2... <laughs> the x86 code runs just about as fast as it does normally. Think about that for a second. So if you fire up, you know, uh, a, a game or Photoshop, if it was the old, you know, older Photoshop or IntelliJ or something, it's going to perform roughly like it would on a current MacBook Pro. So until they recompile them for the ARM, you know, uh, M1 chipset, it'll run just about as decent as normal. Um, and there are some places where they said they were playing some games. And they were a little bit buggy. Yeah, there's certain if you're using certain uh, kernel extensions. Or specific, oh, that's a big problem. Uh, specific Intel instructions that are part of their extensions. It doesn't. Rosetta 2 does not support that. So right. you're kind of SOL if, if if your app uses those. Yeah, I think you have to wait a bit. So the thing is, if you wanted one tomorrow and you're a software developer, you're getting it because you're bleeding edge. Right. It's it's you know, you don't have homebrew yet available for it. Um, a lot of the languages have not been recompiled for it. Parallel, um, is gonna, which is very widely used for VM type stuff is or virtualization. So it's going to be they don't have a clear timeline yet as to when parallel will be available for them. One Docker Docker won't be till after the first of the yeah. year. But let's think about it. Let's let's take ourselves into ETE 2021 coming up. Uh, we'll, you'll see an announcement in a, in a month or two for Philly Emerging Tech 2021. Um, by then, I'll, probably everything will be ported over for it. But it's early days. So if you're an enthusiast and you want to run, you know, a Final Cut or something like that, you got media to work on. It's a nice portable platform. Uh, if you want to put it in a home theater situation uh, or as a, as a computer for your kids to use, perfect. If you want to use it for work, you may have to make some compromises. And because you can't virtualize anything yet, you're kind of stuck. Um, but I think that's a couple months at the most away. Um, realistically, they're going to have a huge amount of uh, interest. The one thing it does do is this M1 chip will run iPad and iOS applications. Just not that well. Yeah. The thing is, you don't have a, you don't have touchscreen. Yeah, you don't have touchscreen. So if the app wasn't designed for other types of input, like trackpad and keyboard in mind, from Which most I, don't. don't. You know? so from what I've read, that performance yeah. usability has been very lackluster. Like, don't buy it for that reason. Yeah. Apple does have a, like, to be submitted to the App Store for these kind of things, they have a certification process that they will deny it if it can't, if, if, if your app is only 
using specific features like the 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 depth touch or whatever it's called the the three force touch force yeah touch. Mm-hmm. like that well they'll reject it and say no you have to modify your app so it can work with a keyboard and trackpad and stuff like that so i think they're starting a process around that um but it'll probably take time before it becomes good enough for that so i wonder and i know they've kind of done this to themselves right um they've got the a14 chip they've got the m1 chip they've got the different operating systems they're not going to release and i could be wrong but they're probably not going to release a touchscreen mac but they should at this point because if you're going to have Excuse me. If you're going to have, you know, iOS apps running on a darn thing, add touchscreen support. But then they would cannibalize their yeah. users of the iOS applications. So, I don't see that happening. No. no. So you know, the best you get is Sidecar. You know, hook this thing up through Sidecar, um, through wireless, and make it a, a wireless touchscreen. And it's imperfect because you can only use the pencil for it. But uh, you know, is so there any, innovation. Uh, any concern about on, on Apple's part about the Surface? About I mean, the, the Microsoft Surface? Microsoft Surface. I mean, that seems to be a pretty popular platform and everything else like that. Yeah. It seems that I know they don't want to cannibalize the iPad and everything else like that, but it seems that that's a, an area where. I'm bringing you, up the Surface X here. Hmm? I'm bringing up the Surface X here. Um, is it the Surface X? What's it called? The, the new Surface with the ARM chip in it. Yeah, I'm not talking about like performance so much as as much no. as a, a user interface and being able to use a touchscreen and everything else like that. You know, right? Oh, yeah, the fact that you can basically use it in both form factors. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what I'm talking about. It's it's like the form factor you can use it in, which. Uh, so this you can take off the key, and I've I've had Surface. I love the Surface and for what it does. It's not the fastest machine, but uh, mm-hmm. I have not played with the Surface Pro X, the ARM one. Um, but, uh, you know, that's right. So it's all in one running windows, um, which I don't mind windows actually some windows, you know, For stuff many, is pretty good these days, it's, you know? Yeah, it works. It, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. My wife has my surface book that I had cause she's working from home now. So mm-hmm. she's using that and it, things rock solid and it's a touch screen and has a great stylus and all the apps work with the input. So there's your difference, right? If you're looking for like an all-in-one unit that can kind of replace your tablet and be a reasonable PC, yeah, that's a really good choice actually, because then you don't have like three different devices that you carry around with it you. Probably also has more ports than the, even the the new Mac Air, <laughs> the M1 and stuff. I think I was reacting yeah. to it, but it's like you'd be surprised <laughs> it doesn't. The number of ports that you know you can't do much with, and you got to have to buy you know, all sorts of adapters, which that's the part that really gets on my nerves about Apple. I, I you would not be thrilled with the number of ports on this either because okay. um in general the surfaces generally come with one USB port, 3.1 port and maybe a USB-C port, a power connector. Now the Surface Book is ridiculously expensive and has like an SD card and two USB ports on the on the base. But these surfaces are going to be limited much like what you're looking at. They're yeah. all going to use dongles. Which and I actually can, worse. I can get it for this thing cuz it's thin and it's like portable. Yeah. But for a Mac Air or a MacBook Pro, like the, it, to me, like where Apple's going, it, the direction they're going in with those machines, I, to me, it's like kind of unacceptable that the, yeah. the, if you're a pro user or a developer or whatever, the, the the ports are lacking, in my opinion. They really need more ports for the for the MacBook Pro 16 inch replacement, bare minimum. They should have four, you know, USB C ports, and they should probably have a separate dedicated video port. But they're not going to do that, you know. So, yeah, that would be nice. Um, 
and and I, I hear the pain of like everything USB-C, you have to have a dongle or a weird cable, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but but anyway, so so point being though, that this is an all-in-one unit that does all of that stuff without any weird translation because it just is a touchscreen Windows device recompiled for ARM. The downside to think of these is there's not that much software out there for them comparatively. And what you'll get with the muscle of Apple and, and their people is a lot of things will be quickly ported over. And I have a feeling this thing, you know, this, this these new MacBooks are going to sell like hotcakes for people who just want them to be really oh, fast. Sure they will. Yeah. yeah. They are already. But we should look at both of those. We should keep our eye on both of those t- t- technologies. They're both customized chipsets. Microsoft has their own chip as well. Um, I'm not sure if they do it themselves or they 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 go to another fab, but it is a custom chip for them. Yeah. And so, its own stuff. Yeah. To me, the, the biggest takeaway is that the pressure that a- AMD has been already putting on that Intel all these years, but now Apple with this puts intense pressure on Intel and they have to up their game and they're not the only game in town anymore. They need to like, it's going to force them to start innovating and lowering their prices. Cause they've basically been, you know, 20 like, years of being like the dominant player taking a lot of advantage of the market and pricing and all sorts of stuff. And they don't out like Apple outsources their, the, the transistor, the, the development to Taiwan with a semiconductor company, I forget the name, which mm-hmm. is why they get that five nanometer process. Mm-hmm. Intel hasn't been willing to do that. Yep. So it's interesting to see a company that is a large company, but can move quicker because they own everything around it. They sell the thing you buy. Right. Whereas yeah. with Intel, you got to work with all the vendors. You have a giant ecosystem. If you want to change it, it takes it's like it's like turning, you know, the planet around and saying, hold on, we got to make a left turn. Just wait, yeah. shove the entire yeah. mountain. They, you know, they should definitely start worrying. I mean, they have a long, long runway and a lot of cash yep. to, fix, to, to fix their own problems. But like, you know, years ago, we used to say, oh, nothing will ever happen to Microsoft. And look what happened. And now it's back up in you know, the new CEO really turned Microsoft around. But I mean, the same yeah. thing that happened in Intel. It should if they want to stay, you know, uh, relevant long term for, for the vast majority of consumer machines. Now, you know, you look at, I guess, uh, you know, um, you look at Amazon Web Services, for example, and they've got all sorts of, uh, you know, hardware. Aren't they now using their own ARM chipset for some of their newest uh, CPUs? There are certain things where they're using their own hardware, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have their own ARM versions. Yeah. You can you can launch those instances of those machines, and they're probably moving a lot of the services to those to save money and to to just get efficiencies out of it. So, this whole industry has now turned from having one major player and a couple of side players from the hardware perspective, you know, for for CPUs, uh, into like individual innovations. And you know, at, at the heart of it is really the ARM open source, uh, not open source, but the ARM technology, right? Because they still have to license the ARM technology version whatever six seven eight uh in order to do their own arm based chipsets yep so after all these years it's become even more relevant which is kind of amazing so all right so hopefully this has been fun for people to listen to uh we're just about at the hour anything else you guys want to mention Hmm. and does it in dolby too Uh, so, uh, yeah, so let's wrap it up. I think so listen, uh, Sue, John and Tom, thank you so much for spending the time with me talking about old hardware and new, and, uh, maybe we'll find a way to get a couple of these things to play around with at some point in the future. But, uh, for now, I'm just going to look from afar and go, I wish I had one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you guys next week. Take care. See you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.